Hello humans, it's been a super long time. This is my attempt to kind of get back on the weekly schedule. As we move into summer, that should be a little bit easier. For those of you who don't know me, in teaching at the Department of Youth Services, I am here 365 days a year. That's not true, but I am here all year because the students are here all year. But with no soccer and all sorts of other things that are not happening during the summer, maybe we can keep the momentum going after this week. There are still some great guests to come, some really good, um, at least I think, really good topics to discuss uh, in terms of creativity, self-care, and discipline, and those sorts of things. So, lots to still do, and hopefully my throat won't be gummy for every single recording from here on. So this week is, is a treat for me. My college experience was generally a very good one at Samford University. And there were a cast of characters, as it were, from a violin teacher who would come in one time with a dress bag on because he was small enough to be able to do that and had one in his car. And it was raining, and it was raining big time. 1997 in Alabama was a rainy year. It was just a wide range of personalities. It was, I'd say, a wide range of intelligence, but that's not true. The The intelligence quotient, as it were, was off the charts. It probably still is, but certainly during that time. And it was really cool because everybody had such different interests in the music department that there were always really, really cool conversations to be had with just about any professor. In particular, my conducting teacher, Dr. Timothy Banks, had been choir director of the University Chorale, which was kind of the wider ranging, everything from majors to non-majors choir. And then towards the end of his time at Samford, stepped up and was the director of the main choir, the acapella choir. And you're going to hear a lot about all of that. After retirement, he moved into several different positions before finally landing at the Eternal World Television Network, which is a Catholic-based religious station here in Irondale, Alabama, not too far from where I'm recording right now, but is incredibly well-known across the world because it's it's one of the biggest Catholic stations in the world, which is kind of wild to me to be in this little city here next to me. He's going to talk a lot about what he does there, um, and it it's all so fitting, even though he wasn't born and raised a Catholic. It's stuff that he's super interested in and super good at. He's also a raging Anglophile, which, of course, Anybody who knows me fits well with my personality. I always enjoy hearing him talk about those things that have to do with the UK because I happen to love everything that that has to do with the UK. So I'm super excited for you guys to get to hear this. It's, to me, a really special discussion and hope you enjoy. Just a note to say that I apparently had audio issues that I was unaware of going on. I'm going to sound a little different than usual, but I don't really usually talk that much. And Dr. Banks sounds great. We're going to be able to move ahead with this, and you're going to enjoy it. Yay! <laughs> Hello, sir. How you doing? I'm doing well, and you? Very well. Tell everybody a little bit about who you are. 
Howdy there, Mike, and thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm Timothy Banks, uh, known professionally as Timothy Paul Banks, but uh, all my friends and all of you, I hope, would know me as Tim Banks. Uh, certainly, the way I sign my name most of the time. I am a retired, longtime professor of music from Samford University in Birmingham. I was very happy to have had Mike as a student, and so go back a little ways. Uh, I retired also from a great many involvements in church music uh, and synagogue music. I have about 45, 50 years worth of church music experience, but all quote-unquote part-time. I don't know what that means. Uh, I've never done part-time very well. So really, most of the time I had two full-time jobs, a church position and and my full-time teaching job at Sanford. So um, yeah, and I've been retired now. Amazingly, since uh, 2010, I took quote unquote early retirement after only 34 fun filled years. Somebody asked me how long I was at Stanford yesterday, uh, and I said 34 years, and I, their eyes got really big. And I, and I had to admit, I started very, very young, though. So, I mean, really. So, there you go. That's, that's retired. I don't know what retirement means either, because as one of the good folks said to me, when I was retiring, officially retiring from Samford, Tim, you're not retiring, you're just reinventing yourself. And I think <laughs> yeah. that's an important uh, concept. Yeah. So um, it's been a few months now since we talked. Yeah. Um, and you had mentioned that that might be something you really want to dig into a little bit here today. But yes. before before we do that, let's visit. Uh, <laughs> you've shared a couple of pictures recently of little Tim. Um, so, <laughs> so starting with him. Do you have those? Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, no. Well, it, it is all I can do not to use those as the, uh, yeah, the thumbnail yeah, yeah. for the <laughs> Well, there's one. I mean, I'm really, I'm a two, I guess I'm a two-year-old with a, a Davy Crockett hat, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day, you know, and I mean, this is like 1955. I was born in 1953. So that was the heyday of Davy Crockett on television. Yeah. And uh, I just had this wild hair to create a pseudo uh headshot with me because i'm going and and at the bottom i put in all caps timothy paul banks conductor the early years so (laughs) there you go there you go so well i guess probably starting a little bit older than that little guy where did you begin as a musician and as a creator well interestingly enough it was only a couple three years after that as a musician i started uh, as a singer my dad was a Baptist pastor, and so I had opportunity to sing in church solos a lot. And I even sang, apparently I sang a wedding at age five. I have vague memories of those. At age five, uh, five and six, I was soloing. And if I was a boy soprano, as you can imagine. So really, that was my, my real start in music. I didn't study music formally until quite a number of years later. So uh my voice changed relatively early, so I was uh, about 11, between 11 and 12, and my voice started changing, and I lost the top notes, and that was devastating. So we moved to Birmingham in 1966, and I was 13, and my voice at that point had somewhat settled, not fully, but it begun to settle. The minister of music at our church, where Dad was pastor, uh, was a Sanford student, and uh, he connected me with Mr. Russell Hedger who was voice instructor and professor at Sanford. And I started in about 1967, uh, 66, 
uh, studying voice in the preparatory music department of what is now called the, uh, what is it, the Samper Academy or something right. like that. You know, the preparatory music department took theory classes and stuff like that. Around that same time, I was uh, going into high school and my uh, last year elementary school teacher was the wife of the band director at the high school I was going to be going to. And so she got me connected with Mr. Agatino Ronchetti. He was the second oboist of the Birmingham Symphony, later the Alabama Symphony, of course. And so Mr. Ronchetti started me on oboe. So I was doing a dual track of taking voice lessons and uh, oboe lessons. And I was an oboist in high school and into college. And that's what got me into instrumental music. The voice, of course, got me into choral or vocal music, solo music and vocal music. And, um, you know, I, I would say the rest is history, but then maybe I'm supposed to talk about some of that. So. Oh, sure. Yeah, dig into it as much as you're, as much you know, as you're well, willing. Really, you know, that's, I really did get started very early as a musician. And I had no idea that I would become a professional musician at that early age. But it didn't take me very long to figure out that I was going to be serving in the music field somehow. Sure. And even in high school, Mr. Ronchetti gave me a shot. I was about 15, and uh, he gave me my first conducting shot. So uh, I led the intermediate band for a National Honor Society tapping ceremony hmm. in high school. We did Pomp and Circumstance, which for, it's really in two, but but I did it in four. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 right. And I did pretty well on that. Then we did a piece called Kentucky 1800, which yeah. I don't remember who to raise it with. Claire Grunman. Oh, is that it? Okay, right, yeah. And unfortunately, it changed time signatures, and I got lost every part of it, but I got back on the track, and they didn't pay much attention to me anyway. They were just playing what they were playing, which is a foundational principle of orchestral conducting that I've learned over the many years, that uh, uh, orchestra members really don't watch you until they need you <laughs> they don't they don't look at you until they need you the other part of that is you really need to be there you know right <laughs> together so uh i got involved in choral music also at woodland high school but then my, we moved to atlanta when i was 16 and i had this wonderful opportunity to audition for what was then called the the choral guild of atlanta which became later the next year the atlanta symphony chorus and so i got to sing at again a very early age with robert shaw wow. uh, the great robert shaw uh, on several occasions there in atlanta i came back to birmingham to undergraduate at samford in 1970 and formulated a at that time our jan term uh was a real four-week january term and uh it was founded in 1967, and this was 1970, so going into 71. At that point, you were encouraged to take a class that you wouldn't otherwise take or create your own sort of classwork or a project. And so I created an internship with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and Chorus and went back and stayed for six weeks because I went over the uh, Christmas break because I was staying with my family. Uh, and worked with Don Newen and uh, I mean Mike Palmer and, of course, Robert Shaw and others for six weeks. And so uh, that was a determining factor for me in my career because I was kind of searching even as a freshman at Sanford so whether I wanted to try a singing career um, or a, a composing career because I was already writing some music. I'd written the world's worst musical a couple of years before that when I was living in Birmingham still. That will never see the light of day, by the way. Oh, there are some pretty bad ones out there. Are you sure? Oh, I know. I know. But this one is so bad. <laughs> I mean, I... No, it's just really that bad. 
<laughs> but I was getting some chops going. And uh, the little scores that I was experimenting with, I showed to a gentleman named T.J. Anderson. He was the composer residence for the Atlanta Symphony. Very kind, gave me nice comments and uh, suggestions. So I had thought the composition thing is the work. And then finally, you know, the conductor bug just bit me, had bitten me badly. And, you know, that's the way I started to move more professionally. I wanted to have a specialty of choral orchestral work, which I landed up managing to do. But I also did 30 and more, 40, almost 40 years of opera and music theater, sharing a uh, theater pit with one Mike Muncher, uh, <laughs> thankfully, and other concerts. Anyway, it's been a wonderful career. It's certainly not over. I just am retired from the day-to-day grind of 8 o'clock classes and teaching and preparing for that. But mm-hmm. um, anyway, there you go. I don't know how much farther on that you would want me well, to go. Well, we'll move closer to the front or the back. I don't know, closer to now um, as, as, we, uh, as we go. <laughs> but uh, digging into, of course, my having known you for, for six years at Sanford, um, yeah. Uh, Six years, not because I was a lazy bum, but because no. they kept changing. They kept changing curriculums. Um, <laughs> it so, takes that long if they keep changing the the landscape underneath. Right. You. Yeah. Yeah. You know. You know. I got through six years and and only took I think two days worth of a math class. Oh, listen! I was very fortunate. I took the require. I was a music ed major also, my undergrad. And so I took uh, the general college math for teachers. You know, right. which was kind of math for dummies in a way, <laughs> uh, which was a good thing because I it was terrible at all the math and stuff. I had toyed with the idea of being a scientist at some level when I was a kid. You know, I mean, kids decide doctor or do this or that, but uh, you know, the music thing just kept landing on my shoulder like a little bird going music, 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 sing, play, right? <laughs> you know. I think I was going to be an astronaut until oh sure uh, I decided to be a band director. Uh, that was seventh grade. Yeah, and I toyed with the idea of doing some you know English along the way. Strangely, there were people that said, "Oh well, you know, it's going to be easier to find a job in English," which is probably vaguely true because there are more English teachers per school. But still, yeah, um, and I toyed with the idea of being a history teacher, just flat out history. But what that morphed into was becoming. A, a music history teacher. So I did a lot of that at Sanford, musicology and so forth. In fact, my doctorate, my master's degree at University of Colorado in Boulder was really a master's degree in conducting. So the doctorate, though, um, I had gone there because I knew that the master's program could lead right into a doctoral program. And I had originally wanted to do the master's in conducting and a doctorate, a PhD in, in musicology. But I found out once I was there that the Doctor of Musical Arts, which was a relatively new degree in 1974, had only been around about 10 years, as doctoral degrees go, had come out of the University of Southern California. And my chairman, uh, Dr. Lynn Whitten, he was uh, one of the original doctorates out of Southern Cal, was just, by the way, uh, coincidentally, Mike, right before Milburn Price. They overlapped (laughs) there in the doctoral program. It was pretty cool. Anyway, the uh, DMA program at Colorado had so much musicology in it, as well as regular conducting and, you know, the whole bit that uh, that was the route I decided to go. So I landed up doing that. And uh, one of the reasons that I lead to that is that 
it was a series of eight major projects, uh, dissertation projects. Two of them, of course, were recitals. So I did those, of course. Two more were papers or research documents written on or done on some of the music that you did in your recitals, which also I did. And then one of them was scoring and arranging, which was a wide ranging thing, everything from thorough bass realization and three styles of the Baroque period to actually taking folk tunes that had no implied harmony under them and arranging those for chorus, choir. So I that did that I would enjoy. Yeah, it was really fun. And I yeah. did four of those and and more, actually, and a lot of that sort of stuff. So uh, that was scoring and arranging. And then you had um, one of the projects essentially was the comprehensive testing also, but there were two more projects that were to be lecture demonstrations. I opted out of the lecture demonstration on one of them because my chairman wanted me to go in with him and four other guys to do an index of a major music periodical related to choral music. So I did, (laughs) I read every I mean, I read or browsed every issue of the Journal of the American Musicological Society um, Mm -hmm. from 1948 until 1980. That was when I was doing the work. We had a complete run at Sanford. So a lot of this work I was doing while I was teaching at Sanford to to finish up the doctorate. Anyway, they were up to be gleaning articles of interest to choral musicians. And so I indexed those. Finally, and lastly, boy, this is way too long around the block, but I locked in on a guy named John Emner. He was a little-known composer and musician in the Jacobean period in England, that is the pre-British Civil War period, at the Ely Cathedral. And here is the Ely Cathedral behind me. Woohoo! How about that? And I'm not going to go into all the architecture and the stuff, but the deal with John Emner was that he provided a great topic for a lecture demonstration, but I also got hold of the part books on microfilm and did some editing of them, which was then also incorporated in the scoring and arranging project. So, we, you know, because it's, it's menstrual notation. Oh, uh, this was this was 1615. Amner and Ely has been a fixation of mine for many, many years. And I've done, when I was conducting the acapella choir, we did a tour to the UK in um, 2007. And I was so blessed to be able to take them to do a concert at the Lady Chapel, which I don't have a photo of right here, but the Lady Chapel is just like next door. It's this large, it's the largest Lady Chapel of its type in in all of the UK. And uh, it's a place where John uh, Rutter started recording with his Cambridge singers way back in the 60s. It has a wonderful history. Ely Cathedral, you can look it up. E-L-Y, by the way, is the the spelling. Definitely not Eli then. It is not Eli. And I have a friend named Elam Ely. He's been a longtime voice teacher. He's just retired from uh, Westminster Choir College. He, he, we were high school mates in Atlanta together. And uh, <laughs> his spelling of his name is E-L-E-Y. And so whenever I put a picture of the Ely Cathedral, he says, I wish I'd learn how to spell that name. <laughs> E-Y, Y, whatever. Anyway, I've been blessed to have a very long and checkered uh, career so far, and uh, it continues. I get excited about new and different things all the time. I hope this is where you're wanting me to go. Yes. Uh, as well, far as, where yeah, it goes yeah. is really almost up to you. Um, but uh, <laughs> but as far as we're getting all the juicy bits. Good, good, yeah. good. Juicy, juicy. 
during the six years I knew you at Stanford, it was actually right before Dr. Price retired. So you hadn't yeah. you hadn't taken over the, the acapella career. I, I was still with the University Corral right. and opera and music theater and, and all that sort of stuff. But also I had been teaching conducting for all those years prior to that as well. Sure. Yeah. So so as you move towards retirement, I guess things were to me, ticking along so well at Stanford. And then all of a sudden there was this shift. <laughs> and I'm not I'm not necessarily saying a shift for the negative, but I'm saying that there was a shift. There was a lot of retirements, yeah. uh, yes. a, a lot of a lot of new blood. And uh, so I guess where you're concerned, what was your kind of, hey, it's time to go sort of uh, sign without getting negative with it? No, it's no negative to it. Uh in fact, I can I can be very positive about Excellent. why I took the quote unquote early retirement, but I'll get to that in a moment. As I said, I started there with Dean Claude Ray Jr. Now, this is not to be confused with his son Claude Ray III, who is currently a development officer for uh, the university and for the arts uh, there. Uh, Claude Ray III. But anyway, uh, Dean Claude Ray II, that is junior, it was my dean when I was a student, and he saw a great deal, I think, of potential. I should say that with some degree of humility, but I know I felt because he told me, and I had only been in graduate school for two years. I'd finished the master's degree and worked on the uh, residency for the doctorate, and he had a job opening that he had sort of created mm -hmm. <laughs> at Sanford in 1976, only two years after I graduated, and he hired me back to do that. I was tired not to lead choral music. I was hired to teach voice and to uh, head up the fledgling opera program. Okay. My predecessor, who will go unnamed, had burnt every bridge known to man between the music department at that time, the music school, and the theater department and everywhere else. And my job initially was to come fix that, to build those bridges back. So I launched in, you know, with all of the fervor of a 23-year-old crazy guy, you know, who's looking at his first big job and and wow, you know, I figured it might be two or three year job or something like that. Sure. And we, and moving on. Ah! You know, so 34 years later, I'm retiring <laughs> as a full professor and tenure. I moved into that. And then the, it was my second year where Dean Ray sort of moved some things around for uh, me to have choral music involved also. And for the year two through six, I led uh, a thing called the Collegiate Choir, which was all freshmen. I had, at the beginning of each of those years, the best high school choir in the state of Alabama. <laughs> but they were, whoa, you know, it's like having right. all states every day, you know, for a month. And they're all competing, you know, as a, all music majors or minors or, or, or whatnot. And then my job was to mold them together. So I take these 18-year-old kiddos, and we just did some magnificent things, I, I'm going to say. And a lot of those students now are hitting 60 because I was only about six years older than them, you know, five, six years older than them. So they're all hitting 60 something. They're at their retirement times. <laughs> it's getting a little crazy, you know, so uh, it's all right. Then um, Dean Ray left to become president at Palm Beach Atlantic. Uh, Gene Black, who had been an associate dean and was conductor of the Occupy Choir for many, many, many years, uh, became the dean. And we sort of plateaued at that point, and it was really 
I did a lot of work outside of the university at that time. In 1987, I became the conductor of what was then called the Birmingham Concert Chorale, which essentially was the Alabama Symphony Chorus. When you put them on stage and and any other choirs that I was able to put, and I took the university chorale there a bunch. And it was so wonderful because I have all these wonderful students who got these great opportunities to sing with a full orchestra. I conducted some of the things, but mostly it was Paul Polivnik at that time who was the conductor of the Alabama Symphony. You know, we did uh, Alabama's first Beethoven Missa Solemnis, the first uh, Berlioz Requiem. I conducted the Brahms Requiem in 1988, a full house at the Sanford Concert Hall, if you can believe it. There were 2,100 people there. You know, we've wow. given tickets away like water, of course, but, uh, you know. Actually, you enough know, bodies you, to soak up all that echo. But how do you fill a 2,600-seat uh, uh, auditorium? You know, and the, and the guys at the Yorks are going, how'd you do that? We gave tickets away like water. By 1991 and 92, I had my first chance to do the London Study Program which then also fulfilled a, a, a real desire that I'd had to go and work in the UK. So Sanford's London Study Program uh, had begun in 1984 under the new president, Tom Course. So let me jump back for a second. In 1983, Dr. Tom Course became the president and everything changed. It was tectonic plate changes. I mean, it was mega. We went from what I used to call the old plantation method of Dr. Wright, uh, when I had been a student in my first years, and I was looking really to leave already at that point. But then Tom Corson became president, and everything changed. And it was so, so fabulous. We became a true academic powerhouse under Tom Corson for 25 years. I'll come back to that in a second. Gene retired from the dean's chair in 1992. After a long time, he was really the only dean that was left that had not been sort of shifted out by the new administration. As I say, it was a, we were kind of plateaued. Well, all right, so they brought on Milburn Price in 1993. Dr. Price turned us into a music school that was truly academically sound, very, very solid. He upped our salaries each year, one rank at a time. He started with the instructors and so forth. Finally, I became a professor. A couple of years later, I got tenure. That was that was a major deal. Dean Price also uh, helped raise the money uh, and put into motion the building of the new rock recital hall. Fabulous, mm-hmm. fabulous place. He founded the orchestra uh, in about 1994 or five, and it was slow building. But then he hired on people like Jeff Flanagan to be full-time violin professor and so forth. Slowly, uh, that became uh, a regular thing. Um, we got a guy named John Parks there for a while that was a real go-getter in percussion. And he was followed then by uh, uh, Tracy Wiggins. and then Who was just named professor at UNA. Exactly, just got his professor. Yeah, yeah, at uh, UNA. Somehow uh, his name comes up in just about every one of these. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, <laughs> really. Yeah. Well, I mean, Tracy was great, and 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 then came Grant Dalton, who is still there and doing fabulous things. So that Sanford finally, in the late '90s and early 2000s, balanced what had been a primarily a vocal school, right, with uh, the instrumental program and 
they came to be in balance. And that was fabulous. In the earlier days, I conducted the performances for what was known as the Concerto Aria competition winners. Um, Mm -hmm. Now they've split that up in such a way that those winners of that competition play on the orchestra season throughout the season. Oh, cool. Instead of one big performance. But I did 13 years. I know every first movement of every concerto ever written. No doubt. Uh, so, <laughs> as a result of conducting this, I, 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 I shudder to think how many times you did the, the Greek. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, that's, that's what I mean. You know, it's stuff like that. You know, uh, a couple of good Haydn trumpet concertos. You know, <laughs> lots of Schumann and Mozart and some Beethovens and uh, throw in a Shostakovich. Right, uh, one or two. I actually got to do the Shostakovich second, which was really cool. As Dr. Price was nearing retirement. He held off until the building was built. And then also that was the time when Tom Quartz was deciding to retire. So 25 years. And I had this funny feeling. That's that's when I became the Oxford Choir Director. Joe Hopkins became the dean. Andrew S. Moreland became the president. So it was another new day kind of thing. Sadly, in 2009, Dr. Quartz died suddenly at age 68. Now, I, I say that with some trepidation because I'm about to turn 69 myself. Mm-hmm. Dr. Quartz, who had been so influential, so important, at least in my career as an academic, um, when he passed away, I, ha- I had the acapella choir up in, a, in one of the, the balconies there in the concert hall, dignitaries, we were on the stage. Uh, and so the choir was up there, and I was leading them, but I was sitting on the stage, and I'm looking out at a lot of my now, at that time, retired or retiring colleagues over the many, many years, right. including music colleagues. I think I even realized, at least subconsciously, that my time at Sanford was coming to a close. And so, as you alluded, you know, your your last years at Sanford, there, were, there was quite a people. Uh, but bear in mind that many of those folks who were retiring then, Mrs. Ousley, Mr. Hedger, Bob Dean, Ted Tibbs, all those guys had been hired by George Kosky in, in the late 50s as they were formulating the first real division of music right. at Howard College, later become Sanford University. And so they had been there from the beginning. There had been no music department before, not really. Not fully before them. Mrs. Martinson uh, carried on. She was the first full-time uh, music teacher and formed the a, a choir called the Acapella Choir. But George Kosky came on ten years later and reformed the Acapella Choir uh, in the image of his alma mater, Saint Olaf. Uh, right. And so every concert would end even with "Beautiful Savior," which is exactly what you know. Sure. Uh, I mean, he had recorded the thing with F. Medius Christensen. This goes way back. It's such a rich heritage at Sanford. It Absolutely. really is. And, and a lot of people don't know that. And some of it, if I may say so, and, and forgive me for, for being a little too specific, but a lot of it was kicking against the thorns of Baptist hierarchy and Baptist lowerarchy. <laughs> Not so hierarchy. Uh, malarkey, in fact. I'm the first guy to have ever performed masses in Latin Mozart on the Sanford campus on a regular basis, beginning in 1977. And that was just unheard of, uh-huh. like Catholic, that Catholic music. So what am I doing now? I'm singing for the Eternal Word Television Network, the Global Catholic Network in Irondale, 
on a regular basis and writing tons of music for them. When I came to know about retirement in 2008 and 2009, when the economy went to heck in a handbasket, to put it euphemistically, I was given the opportunity to take the early retirement before they actually did away with it. The point is that I had just returned from my last international tour with the Acapella Choir. We had toured Europe. We'd started at the Chartres Cathedral in France and sung at Notre Dame Cathedral. We sang several concerts in Italy and then closed it up by singing Mass at the Vatican on Thursday afternoon. And on that evening, I'm sitting in my hotel room and my wife, Wanda, and I telling her, honey, I, I'm just burnt to a crisp. I don't know what to do. You know, I just really was burnt up. I mean, how do you top the Baptist-related choir singing Mass at the Vatican? Gosh. So anyway, I came back to, uh, to Sanford, to the campus, and I talked with the uh, HR guy, a wonderful fellow named Fred Rogan, who's also a musically uh, talented guy. I was trying to work out a way to become something like a university professor or something, something, you know, change it up. The thing that it kept me alive at Sanford was that my job would change or evolve every few years. Sure. So I never was just stuck in the rut that so many professors are. And I think that's one of the beauties of being in the music area or in the arts. You can evolve. You can change. You can reinvent yourself, so to speak, as they say. He convinced me that I didn't want to do that because of financial implications that would have to do with my regular retirement. And he said, and here's what I'm not able to tell you. The trustees are looking for a way to stop the bleeding from the endowment, which had lost one third of its value. Uh, It had gone from $300 million to $200 million overnight in 2008. That was the Mm -hmm. great recession that we had. And he said, you need to take this now, which would be two thirds of my actual retirement, or you're going to lose it because they're going to do away with it, or they're going to make it financially impossible for you to take. That's actually what they landed up doing. But I, I made the decision prayerfully, talking with Wanda, talking with other friends. Uh, as I started that year with the acapella choir on the first day, we had been very good at keeping it a secret until then that I was retiring. And um, so I, I said, okay, how many of you here are freshmen? And I, of course, got the hands. How many of you are sophomores? Uh, juniors? Juniors. How many of you are seniors? And I had several sound up, and I said, me too. Well, then they made me emeritus professor and adjunct professor. I've taught some classes in the meantime since then. That's the story, 2010. It was, it was great. And I was asked to write an article for the American Choral Directors Association somewhat after that by my friend Tim Sharp, who was the executive director. He wanted to do a series of articles from several of us uh, on what do retired choral directors do. And so I, I titled mine Reinventing Yourself, but I also subtitled it you may or may not know this too. What do you do with a general when he stops being a general? That's the Bing Crosby song in the movie White Christmas when he's making the appeal uh, to all of his former army buddies. What do you do with a general when he stopped being a general? What do you do with a general who's retired? So <laughs> being a, a conductor, a choral musician in that case, you know, I, I I like to think I was a broader musician than just that, but uh, spending so much time in the choral world is a little bit like being a general. It is certainly like being a coach because you're recruiting and you're coaching people. You may or may not remember in conducting class, I would always tell my students, look, 95% of my job as a conductor is over when we step on the stage or step into the worship service or do whatever. The rehearsal is the conductor's performance. 
And uh, that's where the action is for somebody who is really serious about being a conductor. And then that 5% that's left, that's what people think of as conducting. You know, it's the showbiz. What I would always say is that, look, that 5% consists of starting the music, keeping the music going, stopping the music. And then somewhere between that start and the stop, if you've really done your job well in the rehearsals and they're really paying attention and things are coming together, you can squeeze out that extra something called music, whatever extra there is. The thing that separates a pedestrian performance from a really uplifting, musically uh, inspiring performance. And yeah, there's there's also the conductors that see it as an opportunity to squeeze in some interpretive dance. Yeah, and I was I hated that. I, I would always tell my players and singers, look, what you see is what you get. I am not one of those guys that says, well, you never know what I'm going to do. Oh, sure. uh, because that is disaster. That can be absolute disaster. But I don't think it is as productive as rehearsing in the possibilities. One other thing I can say about that is having been a conductor who actually prepared people for another conductor. That was my six years working with the Alabama Symphony and the Symphony Chorus. I would tell those people in many of those performances, the ones that I wasn't actually going to be conducting myself, I would say, look, I am not the jockey. I am the trainer. And so we're going to rehearse certain things a couple, three different ways. And when the jockey gets on this horse, you're going to know what to do. Right. That worked very well, uh, at least for me. Uh, you know, I can't say that that would work for everybody. And it was successful the first few times I tried it, and so I, I kind of stuck with that. Well, and you've done, in addition to all that, quite a bit of writing now into the composition and conducting there at, at EWTN. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I went to EWTN. I was leaving my more recent church position at Southside Baptist. I had gone there a second time in 2014 and then going into 2019, right at the end of 18. I, uh, I was looking to leave that position. And, and so uh, this fellow uh, that is the music director uh, at EWTN had been at a, an event that I had been hosting. He just said, hey, Tim, if you're ever looking for a singing job, you know, please check in with me because he knew I was a singer. And so... Uh, I decided that I would try them out. So I went to a mass, one of the mass broadcasts at 7 a.m. Central Time on a Sunday morning uh, before my church rehearsal and service. And so, uh, you know, that morning I I realized, yeah, I could do this. You know, I, so I'll check in. So I checked in with him and there were several singers that I knew. A couple of them were even my own former students. Sadie Frazier Goodman, for example. Uh, was one of my star sopranos with the acapella choir. And she's now Dr. Sadie Frazier Goodman and teaching voice at Sanford uh, part-time. So I went in and told Derek, you know, look, I'd like for you to have a job. You know, and, and he said, well, when can you start? And I said, well, pretty soon, you know. And so uh, he says, and I said, oh, and by the way, I write. I write a lot. And so if you have any need for something. Well, so I got on board there in February of 2019. He gave me a couple of assignments, things that he wanted me to arrange and or write something original, and he liked them. And so every two or three months, he gives uh, a, a service order for all of the masses, boom, 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 every single one. It's, it's every day of the week at 7 a.m. You know, now I don't sing all of those. I'd sing some of them, 
but but anyway, but then he has to do music on a rotational basis. And not to make it too long, they can't afford the performance rights, the performance royalties for a lot of published music that's already out there. So they have to use public domain material. So we do Palestrina and Bird and stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. it's public domain, uh, or anything written before, let's say, roughly 1908-ish. Uh, and then new things. That's where I came in. Arrangements and new stuff. I started uh, arranging and writing a couple of original tunes for Christmas uh, stuff. We did the Christmas DVD um, that summer. And uh, that was very successful and, and is continued and mounted. We just last fall did a, uh, another CD. And uh, so I had out of the, I think, 12 or 13 tunes on that, CD, uh, seven of them are mine. There's a lot there. And I have done more writing, as I say, in the last three years for EWTN uh, and in general than I have done in 10 years prior to that. It's hampered. Though I did write for the Oxford Choir and sure. for various groups. I did incidental music for Twelfth Night performance in the right. theater department, stuff like that. You know, yeah. it has branched out so that one of my earlier students, very early students in the early 80s, I knew him as Bill Hathaway. He goes by B.T. Hathaway now. He had been a music major, was sang in the Oxford Choir with Gene Black, conducted with me and so forth. So he's been in the funeral home business all these years, but he also expanded and got into filming. He does all this sort of drone footage and all, all kinds of stuff. And he's got cameras galore and he edits. And he has just written a script called Waveline Requiem that's about a 12 to 15 minute short and he needed music. So he just put out a thing on Facebook and I said, look, I'm looking to get into film yeah. composition if I can. And so we have been, you know, he's finished his filming. He's, he's in the editing process now. I'll get a rough cut. I've been doodling around with a few ideas. So I'm dabbling in the film score. So uh, are you learning how to work within a, a digital audio workstation? Yeah, I've, I'm working with Logic Pro. Cool. I have been working with GarageBand for a long time, and so it's just a step up. I have been going to Film Score University, so to speak, on YouTube for the last few weeks, just really jumping in. There's a young lady named Anne Catherine Dern, D-E-R-N. She's German originally, but uh, she is based in Los Angeles. Really fine film composer, and she has all these tutorials that are much more approachable than a lot of the guys uh, that I've watched. Uh, there's one guy that just I can't. Uh uh-uh, uh, sorry, I can't deal with him. I'm out. Okay, bye. Have you watched uh, any uh, guy Mitchell more? That's him. That's oh, him. You, you don't like him? I I can't deal with him. I think um, I, I love him. I think start. he's awesome. He's great. He's funny <laughs> and he's great and he really knows what he's doing. Yeah. But I get brain fog trying to follow him on some of those things yeah yeah it's not well and it's not so far it's it's funny because it's not so far off of what i'm doing with the production music stuff you know so and i'm sure you know if you want some nice logic tutorials or 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 basic basic things like that uh the guy that runs the school i'm in is named uh richard schreiber so you should look him up richard schreiber i shall write that down even as we speak richard Schreiber, as in S-C-H-R-I-E-B-R. E-B-E-R, rather. That looks like Schreiber to me. Yeah. I, is it that's how I E-I or I-E? It's, it's I-E. 
How about that? But yeah, I'm a, I'm a logic guy. When I'm at work, yeah. I can't use that because it's an all Windows place. So I've gotten into Reaper. Interestingly, uh, Anne Catherine Dern has shifted from Mac to Windows mm-hmm. in recent times, uh, about a couple of years ago, actually, a year or so ago. And so she has one uh, a tutorial, you know, Mac versus Windows. Her deal is that she's been involved with Cubase, and that was a natural thing. Back when I was Windows, I actually had Cubase. I had this really going and blowing Sony computer back in the early 90s. Back think. when Sony was a thing in computers. Yes, yes, <laughs> right. It was a VAIO wonder. It was great. I got my first Sibelius for that. Uh, it was like Sibelius 2, but it was a bootleg from yeah. uh, one of my buddies. Man, Sibelius was bootlegged everywhere back then. Everywhere, yeah. yeah. But then when younger daughter Abigail became a Sanford student in about 2000, she eventually landed up in a graphics design degree. Mm-hmm. And of course, they were all Mac, all about Mac. And so she just said, Dad, Sibelius is a graphics program. What's the matter? You know, you, you need to go. <laughs> you need to go Mac. So I got my first Mac laptop, MacBook, through the university. We didn't get into negative stuff. I usually ask about roadblocks or obstacles, things like that, that you've kind of overcome. I guess if you can nutshell it. I can do that. I had a, a stupendous bout of depression at age 35. Okay. Um, I had finished my doctorate a couple of years before that. And my chairman said, look, you're going to have something that we just call postdoctoral depression. And so you need to you need to take care of yourself and, and so forth. I didn't see it coming, but it came on a couple of years later. And mm-hmm. uh, I was I was almost suicidal. It's terrible. My my girls were young, uh, daughter Allison and Abigail. Family couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. I would come home from uh, university early and just sit on the couch and just be. Right. And somehow uh, the challenge of work with certain people, and I won't go into where and how, but uh, the church I was serving at the time and, and other things, I snapped out of it. And I went to the doctor and I, I got a little bit of pharmaceutical help, nothing stupendous, just a, sort of a standard low-level uh, antidepressant. I've not had that problem since then. Not really. I've, I've had a few times when I just felt like giving up and such, but always something else came up. Uh, roadblocks also. We mentioned Dr. Price. I probably should have been the conductor of the Oxford Choir at least a couple of years before I landed up taking it because he felt the need to hold on to it longer than he had said originally. I'm divulging a little um, stuff. Inside He's, baseball. Yeah, inside baseball. Well, I mean, he had basically said, okay, I've taken over back to the choir. I'm going to do it for like three years. And then in my last year before retirement, I'm going to hand it over to you and be supportive of you. That retirement time went later and he seemed to forget. And so he then made me associate conductor one year. And the next year he made me (laughs) co-conductor. And I'm going, geez, this is the longest dang transition. (laughs) One thing that got me through it, though, my friend John Dixon, who was under Milburn at Southern Seminary in Louisville, said he did the same thing with me. Something about Dr. Price being very controlling. Anyway, he finally, you know, he gave in, gave up the year that he was retiring. 
This is why I was the new conductor of the Archaeology Choir with a new dean, Joe Hopkins, mm-hmm. which was at first a little uncomfortable, quite frankly, and became even <clears throat> less comfortable down the line. But then years later, as I was meeting with Joe, uh, telling him I was going to take the early retirement, <laughs> I said, Joe, I have done everything in my field there is to do here at Sanford at least once, if not more than once. But, you know, I just got to that point also that it was easier for me to take that early retirement, even though it is only two thirds of what I would have been paid had I lasted it out another 10 years to Social Security age. Mm-hmm. I was 57 when I actually walked out. It's going to be one of those 67 year old guys. Not going to happen. I, I would have died, I'm sure. I, I don't think I could have lasted it. That's the other side of it is that I have been fortunate to be inspired to make changes that were not always very comfortable. Immediately, the year after retirement, I was afraid actually of not having a full-time job, you know, quite frankly, at age 57. And, you know, it's going to be off always for, you know, Social Security and so forth. So I took this position with Landmark Tour and Travel. They wanted me to help them get into the college business. Well, as it turns out, the college business is a lot more selective than that. And they are kind of a hometown state of Alabama group that mostly sends music groups to, you know, to Six Flags Music Festival and Disney World, Disney Disney stuff. And uh, they they couldn't cope with what I was dealing with. You know, I did have a few tours that I I booked the uh, Birmingham Southern College Choir down to New Orleans. They got to sing at the St. Louis Cathedral and Mm -hmm. all stuff. I booked the uh, First Baptist Church of Fort Payne. They went to New York. They wanted to go to New York. And I said, okay, all right, we're going to have you sing at this little St. Paul's Chapel, which is at the foot of where the Twin Towers was. And they do a regular thing there each day. They have a kind of a memorial service there a lot. And so mm-hmm. these youth choirs sang there. They worked in a soup kitchen in Hell's Kitchen. And uh, they sang some of the concerts around in the New York area. They they went to a Mets game, blah, blah, blah. You know, all the sort of toury stuff. Sure. You know, it was a bad fit for me. And I won't go into the very, very negative way. I just said, I'm gone. I'm out of here. They were pulling back on my range so badly. Travel companies are are odd in the first place. Um, Yes, yes. And to me, even even just having been a high school director, I would know pretty quickly that college groups and high school groups are completely different in their literally different. And and I found out uh, the hard way that my college colleagues were doing it pretty much the same way I had done it, which was book my own stuff, except for the actual hotels and things like that. I would have somebody who could book all that stuff, either nationally or internationally. But as far as the venues were concerned, it was me visioning. I mean, I'm the guy who had the wacky idea of taking the acapella choir to the Ryman Auditorium. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know, crazy, but also to the Kennedy Center and to Spivey Hall in Atlanta and so forth and the international tours, you know, England and Europe and such. I had a really great guy named Clive Richardson, who was my tour guy for the choir tours abroad. I keep referring to it because it looms so large in my mind that we had the opportunity to sing Mass at the Vatican, uh, which we found out about. Uh, Clive had already been toying with booking us at the Canterbury Cathedral in the UK. And 
when I told them, I said, look, my people here, my gene and these guys, they want to go and, and do the Vatican thing. He says, I can't believe that you're going to throw over the seats of all Anglican worship for that popish place over there in Rome. Really, really a great guy. And I learned a lot from him that I thought I might get to do when I went to work for Landmark. Wasn't going to happen. Right. Right. <laughs> Much too small ball. It wasn't even minor league ball compared to Clive. There are those things that you do that you think, well, uh, maybe I was wasting my time on that. So I left that position, though, and I walked right into a position for which I was totally qualified. I have the greatest amount of enjoyment out of helping to create a situation that I may have to do more legwork. Now, my family did suffer some from this because there would be those dad or husband getting up at 3.30 in the morning in the pre-Sibelius days, copying out instrumental parts Mm -hmm. (laughs) for a thing because I had to be at an 8 o'clock class at school. But it was that experience that got me into what I'm doing now. I did the original orchestrations in the mid-1980s for Three on a String. You know the group Three on a String? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Bobby Horton and he's in all these Ken Burns films and stuff like that. But this mm-hmm. was before all of that. Bobby came to me and said, look, can you help me figure out how to orchestrate the some of our tunes? Because they were going to do a, their first Pops Orchestra concert out in Longmont, Colorado with Longmont Symphony Orchestra. And so I took him to the Sanford Library and checked out a couple of books in my name for him. Less than a week later, I get this phone call from Bob. He says, how much can we pay you <laughs> to do these orchestrations? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, okay. I can say to this day, if you need Turkey on the Straw to become orchestra music, I'm your guy. I referred to taking the Acapella Choir to the Ryman. That was the last concert on the tour. And we built this thing so that it would be a kind of a point of interest for the School of Business. School of Pharmacy and School of the Arts, all of whom had big support mechanisms there, and we had a nice reception afterwards. But I brought in Bobby to do 20 minutes of his one-man show in the middle of our choir sets. But at the end of the choir set, he joined us in doing Mac Wilberg's fabulous arrangement for double choir and keyboards of Cindy. I wish I was an apple. Get along home, little Cindy. Mm -hmm. But I rewrote it so that it would have three additional breaks so that Bobby in the first break is playing banjo and the second break he's playing fiddle and the third break he's playing dobro and the last break he's on guitar. (laughs) You know, and we brought out uh, four square dancers, two on each side. And the reason I bring that up is that we also repeated that show. Then a week later, Reed Chapel at Sanford University. We had the, Stage extended out, and here's square dancers coming out, wow. and Bobby doing the deal, and the, you know, not not exactly the largest area to, to do all that in. <laughs> I know, but but the, <laughs> the thing was, I said earlier that I had been kicking against the thorns uh, yeah. <laughs> for most of That's my career. Fine. Well, that was another one. There you Why go. not? Why not? There you go. I hate to kill it off here because I'm actually having a blast, but got... <laughs> me too. Obviously, I could. <laughs> well, Mike, I, I'm so proud of what you're doing. This is great. I look forward to not so much hearing me uh, talk about myself so much, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, I want to hear the other podcasts. Yeah, so. it's been really good so far. So I'm, I'm hoping to. And yes, when you said Bobby Horton, I was like, wow, haven't I gotten Bobby Horton? Well, um, so. I, I hate to drop my name, but seriously, telling that I said you really need to get a hold of him. 
it's good to have been with you. Thank you Absolutely. for asking me. I, I'm honored, and uh, I, I feel like I'm, I'm in the midst of uh, a whole crew of really neat people. So uh, yeah. thanks. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll see you. Peace out, man. Bye-bye. I'll tell you, it's become incredibly apparent to me that those of us who went to Sanford, especially during that time, did not have a, I would say, typical experience for a lot of people who went through college at various universities throughout the world. I've had a number of people who went to music school who've told me recently that they didn't feel like their teachers and professors cared about them and their development as much as they cared about maybe ticking some boxes towards being a particular kind of school or getting a particular agenda across to the students. I really hate that uh, for them because my experience was incredibly wonderful, especially in the music school. I could take or leave a lot of the other experiences across campus, but within the music school itself, it, it was just a joy. It was wonderful. And I hope that for my own kids, you know, to be able to go and create experiences with professors and colleagues in their classes that are memorable to them. It must be said, too, that my experience at Oklahoma State was somewhat similar within the music school there or the music department at the time. I think it's a music school now, but at the time it was just the music department. It was fantastic. The personalities were just as exciting and just as wide-ranging. Just really great to catch up with an old professor and a great friend and to learn a little more during this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it nearly as much as I did. As always, you can get me on the World Wide Web at MikeCaseyComposer.com. You can email me at MikeCaseyComposer at iCloud.com, and you can find me on the socials, Instagram and Facebook, at MikeCaseyComposer. I don't do Twitter. Join us next week when we talk about some more stuff. Next week, we'll talk about what's in a name. I'm just going to leave it at that because if I talk about it right now, you'll have the whole thing and you won't want to listen. And I want you to want to listen because it's going to be a fun topic. It's something that's important to me uh, and has been ever since college, but it's not a lesson I learned at college. I'll talk to you again soon, and I hope you have a fantastic week. Bye-bye. 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 B